Amen. We are so excited this morning to be starting our new Christmas series, Who Needs Christmas? And so if you have a Bible, you can open up into Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9 in the Old Testament. And uh, we're going to be talking just a little bit about this idea of who needs Christmas. And uh, as we're starting this new series, we're going to go for four weeks. And so I want to encourage every single one of you to invite someone out, to encourage someone to come out, and uh, just to celebrate Christ together. I, I know that this time of year, many, many people who maybe don't think about church, uh, don't think about coming to a service, don't think about um, the, the God of this world, the, the God of the Bible, they don't think about Jesus a whole lot, but they do think about it around this time of year. And so I encourage you, come on out, invite them to come on out. Four-week series, it's going to be awesome to walk through these things together. And uh, we are so excited about that. And uh, we are still going to be doing the series, uh, even on the, the day of the Christmas musical. We're going to kind of do a condensed version of it. But want to encourage you to come on out then as well. And we're so excited for what the Lord has for us. And so as we're talking about this idea of who needs Christmas, as we talk about all this stuff surrounding all the various things of Christmas, uh, in the video you guys saw some examples of that. You saw examples of shopping and parties and food and all these things. It got me thinking, uh, in, in this kind of time of year, what is your favorite Christmas tradition? Meaning like part of Christmas, and some of you are going to be like, going to church. Okay, that's a great answer. But don't be that guy, okay? Don't, don't do that, okay? I mean, that's a given, okay? If you're here, I'm going to assume that's a given. But is there any part of Christmas that you, like a, a tradition you do that you just really, really enjoy? And so I'm not going to let Rick Fox answer because we don't have that much time for him to answer. So, um, but no, is there anyone that wants to real quick give me one or two things that you love around this time of year that you enjoy? Quick little tradition or something you enjoy, the part of Christmas you enjoy the most outside of Christ and his birth. Lynn. Family get-togethers. How many people love family get-togethers? Raise your hand. Family get-togethers. How many people are okay with family get-togethers? How many of you could do without family get-togethers? All right. Well, all of you are going to be at the altar after service today. It's great to have you. It's been good to know you. Um, anyone else? Real quick. Yeah. Okay. How many people get going around looking at all the lights around town or around your neighborhood or out here in the country? Okay. How many people can't stand Christmas lights? Like, oh, some, oh, I saw you. Was, Chris Fox was like, got a list out. Who raised their hand? I got you. Go ahead. Raise your hand. I dare you. Go ahead. And I just want to say publicly, I told Chris this. I did not. Uh, there's Greg back there. I did not tell Greg to say that, by the way. Like, just so we're all clear, I would never insinuate that Chris Fox was bossy. Like, that's never something I would ever even consider. Um, and Rick says amen if he was in here. I think he's... I think he stepped out for a minute. But, yeah, if he was in here, he would say amen and praise the Lord. Amen. So, no, a lot of great things going on this time of year. Anyone else? Get a couple more real quick. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, reading the, the, gospel, or the gospel account of the birth of Christ. Absolutely. Love that. Before all the kids open the presents, before the family gets into the gifts, reminding everyone why are we doing this. Right? Absolutely. A couple more. Yeah, Kathy. Very cool. Yeah, very cool. Getting the grandkids involved now that they're older. Absolutely. A couple more, real quick. Renee, back there. The music of the season. How many of you started listening to Christmas music before Thanksgiving? Be honest. Okay, how many of you don't want to listen to Christmas music until like Christmas Day? It's okay. It's all right. Hey, it's church. You can be honest. Okay. 
Some of you are like, oh, no, I love Christmas music. You turn around, you're like, this song again? So, no, I, I do truly, honestly love the music of this time of year. Um, I got to say, that last song we just did, um, that was awesome. Like, I've, I don't know if I've ever heard that before. Is that a hymn, or is that like a, a newer song, or what is What? Someone tell me. They're laughing at me now because I don't know music. I wasn't in here when you rehearsed that one, I don't think. Yeah, I wasn't in here at that point. I loved it. That was awesome. Very cool. So we got to do that one again at some point, so for sure. Um, so a lot of stuff going on. But here's the question we have to ask. With all of this stuff going on, and a lot of times this time of year, there's family get-togethers and food and all that good stuff, okay? Um, I didn't, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you like food. I think it's a safe bet we all like food, okay? That's probably a good guess, okay? Some of you guys like my, my wife's side of the family. Um, one of her uncles makes this caramel fudge, right? Or no, cream cheese fudge and the, what's chocolate caramels. That's right. I get them confused, okay? I don't know what this guy puts in this stuff. But, like, when he starts walking around with this tin and handing it out, people are gathering it up like it's, like, food for the winter. Like, they're, like, storing it. Like, Sandra will grab, like, put it in her pocket. She's like, I got this. I'm good to go, you know. Like, it's so funny. And sometimes I'm not a big sweets person. Um, I don't like a lot of the sweets and cakes and all that stuff. So I'll always pass up on it. I'm always like, no, I'm okay. And I always get this weird look, like, what did you just say? Like, he's not heard that in the entire room of, like, 35 cousins. Nobody has said, I'm okay. He's just like, really? You don't want any? I was like, maybe later. He's like, oh, okay. It's like crazy, okay? So we all like this stuff. We all love this stuff. But here's the thing. Sometimes if we're not careful, we can get so wrapped up in the stuff of Christmas that if we took Christ out of it, I wonder how many traditions would be able to continue on and not even notice a difference. And that's kind of the point of this message is with all this stuff going on, this series we're going to look at, okay, with all this stuff going on, if we took Christ out of Christmas, if we just removed him altogether and it was just a holiday, how many of us, how many of our families, how many of our friends wouldn't even notice the difference between having Christ in Christmas and just having the stuff of Christmas? I love what these guys said about gathering around and, and reading the account from Luke and looking at the Word of God and saying, what happened 2,000 years ago? One thing we do, it's very simple because I have little kids. So you know what it's like to wake up on Christmas morning with little kids. There's not much listening going on, okay? There's a lot of one-track mind. I'm going for the gifts. Like, that's what's going to happen here, okay? So one thing we do is, is we just gather around and we just kind of take a moment and we just ask hey, how can we praise God this morning for what he's already given us? Not so much what we're going to receive, if, if you do gift giving and you receive gifts, but how can we praise God for what he's already done for us? And then we just have some time of prayer. And it's amazing to watch a six-year-old trying to pray three feet from the Christmas tree on Christmas morning. And I love Josiah. He's trying so hard, but he's just like... Like, he's like, it's like going into a game or something. Like, he's just getting amped up. Like, here we go. Let's do it. But it's great to stop and remember. Like, all this stuff is good. All these traditions are fine. There's nothing wrong with some of the things that we do at Christmas time. We've always had a tradition that we let the kids open up one gift on Christmas Eve and the rest on Christmas morning. I don't know why we started. When I was a kid, we did that. And I love doing that. And so we do that with them now. And one of the boys said to us in the car that they said, hey, can we still open up a gift on Christmas Eve? And I said, yeah, we'll do that. Well, last year, actually the last couple years, we bought them, like, matching pajama things, you know. Like uh, last year was Star Wars or whatever, right? 
And so we always do that on Christmas Eve. We give them the pajamas to open so they can wear it Christmas Eve night, wake up Christmas morning, have their pajamas on. There was a request. said, listen, we really want to open gifts on Christmas Eve, but could it not be pajamas? Could that not be what we do? Can we maybe open a toy or something? And I said, no gifts for anyone. No, I didn't say that. But I said, yeah, we'll talk about that. So, but I want to walk through this, this the next four weeks. I want to talk about if we remove Christ from most of our Christmas traditions, would we even notice a difference? Because really, at the end of the day, so many things could keep happening, right? Like, could people still give gifts without Christ in Christmas? Absolutely. Could businesses continue to do all these sales and deals and all this stuff? Absolutely. Could we still have Christmas music without Christ? Yeah, there's some we couldn't have, but there's a lot of Christmas music we could still have. And so if we took him out of it, if we just removed him altogether, what would our Christmas look like? Would we even notice the difference? Because at the end of the day, who really needs Christmas? I mean, it's just a holiday. Who really needs this day of celebration that we set aside in the month of December? My prayer is that over the next four weeks, we will understand who and why Jesus came over 2,000 years ago to save, to have a relationship with, to understand and to see who in the world is Christmas really for and who really needs Christmas. I believe a, a great place to start is found in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Here we see a great summary in this passage of Scripture about who Christ is, about what Christ came to do, and about what Christmas really is about. And at the end of the day, we'll find out who really needs Christmas. This passage of Scripture is written 800 years before Christ's birth. 800 years before his birth. Look at Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Can we just stop for a moment and just praise God for his grace? That he would even give us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, did you ever stop and think, those first few words don't have to be there. He doesn't have to give us a child that is to be born. He doesn't have to give us a son. Everything he does, even in his coming as an infant, is solely based on the grace and love of God for the world. So can we just stop for a second and just acknowledge that reality? Just acknowledge how blessed we are, just that he came. See, we get so wrapped up, and I know I do too, in what he came to do. And by the way, it's vital what he came to do, and we'll get to that in a little bit here. But it's so much more important. Not so much even what he came to do, but that he just came to us. So don't rush through that. Don't just jump into what God did for you and what God is going to do for you. Giving us the greatest gift. Praise God that he even showed up. Praise God that when he didn't have to come, he came to us. And is anyone excited at all that he came? And I'm overwhelmed that our God is so gracious that when he didn't have to even give us his word, do you ever think about this? I just unplugged that, didn't I? Rick Fox was like, can I put a plug down here? Hang on a second. Pause. Okay, going to have to tape that or something. I'm going to kill myself one day. I kicked it twice already, and I thought, oh, I'll avoid it, and then I just get forgetting about it. Who puts a plug there? Anyway, 
Have you ever stopped and thought about the fact, and we talk about this all the time, that, that his word from Genesis chapter 1 all the way forward, he didn't have to give us his word? That he sovereignly and graciously chose to work in and among human beings, giving them the spirit of God to speak his word so we could even know him? And then when we get to know him through his, his word in the Old Testament, we can actually then find out he's going to come again as a person of Jesus Christ? And we can expect that and be ready for that. Here, 800 years before Christ came, we see grace. Grace didn't show up when Jesus showed up. Grace has always been a part of God's character and his makeup and who he is. May God is good and gracious and loving and kind. And he says that he is willing to give us a child, a son that is going to be born. So who is this son, this child that's going to be born 800 years from this passage being written? It says here, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And that's our Savior. That's who Jesus is is and will be and forever will be. It says here, he says, his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Let's do this this morning. Let's pray. And I want to ask that you, right there where you are, that you would just think through, God, am I even starting at the point of just being thankful for you coming? Get beyond what you do for me or what you want to do for me or what I want you to do for me. But am I just starting at the point of being thankful that you came 2,000 years ago? And so let's do this. I'm going to ask you guys to bow your heads. And just right there where you are, whatever you're going through, whatever the situation looks like, just say, God, I just want to be thankful for the grace that was there that allowed you to come as an infant before we even get into what you did for us. Father, we thank you for your many ways you display your grace. May we guard our hearts against thinking that somehow grace began when you were born, that you brought grace that never existed before. May we truly understand that your grace started with you, that you've always been gracious, you've always been loving, you've always been kind. And so, Father, equally so, when we as human beings have walked away from you, have turned our backs on you, have sinned against you, that you still show us grace, and yet, however, you tell us there's a consequence to that choice. That if we continue in our sin without trusting in you as Savior, that we will spend an eternity separated from you. But your grace was given. A son was born. And by that very act of birth, by you just coming to us in the flesh, the God-man, Christ Jesus, we were given a way of escape from the power of sin, the penalty of sin. And if we would just trust and put our faith in you and in you alone, you can save us. You will save us from our sin. And so may we talk, yes, about all that you came to do, but may we start off with just remembering that when you didn't have to come to us, that you came as a child, lived a sinless life, died on a sinner's cross, were buried in a borrowed tomb, and rose again on the third day, giving victory over sin and death and hell. And so may we praise you this morning for being that God, 
a God that we can't fathom, but a God that we can worship for being who you say you are according to your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah is writing and unfolding a mystery set in motion way back in Genesis chapter 3. The mystery of the Messiah. The one who would come to save the people of God from their sins. Now they get an insight into who he will be and what he will do. We are going to unpack these titles given to the Messiah over the coming weeks to see who really needs Christmas. Today, we are beginning by talking about Christ as the wonderful counselor and the mighty God. The wonderful counselor and the mighty God. So who really needs Christmas? If you're taking notes, the first group of people that need Christmas, not could use it, not would benefit from it, but the group of people that could need or that do need Christmas would be people who are desperate. People who are desperate need Christmas. How will we see this unfold in our lives? Well, I believe that we all at times need to realize that we are truly desperate for a Savior. You see, how we see God determines how we will approach God. I want to start kind of unpacking this in our thinking. How we see God determines how we will approach God. Let me ask you a couple questions to think about just to get our thoughts kind of going in this direction. Who is God to you? Don't answer out loud, but just think about this for yourself. Who is God to you? What type of adjectives would you use to describe God to someone else? What type of God is God to you? And if you had to describe that God to someone else, what words would you use to describe him? Would you use words like joyful, cheerful? Would you words, use words like angry or vengeful? How would you describe God to someone else? How do you see God, not only for yourself, but even for others? How do you think God sees you? So not only how do you see God, but how do you think God sees you? How do you feel God would describe you? How would God describe you to someone else? See, if you are at a place of desperation, a place of just feeling lost and undone, you are not alone. And when you are in those places, your view of God can change. Anyone know what I'm talking about this morning? Anyone ever been here where you're in a situation or a season of just desperation and you actually, your view of God starts to change or how you think God views you start to change? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Just nod your head if you know what I'm talking about, if you've been here. I think we all find our places here at times. But in the word of God, in Isaiah chapter 9, we see that he is the wonderful counselor. And I love that he is given that title because to me, he has all the wisdom that I could ever need, that I will ever want to be able to see God in the right light so that I can in the right way approach God in a time of desperation. Does that make sense? That if you go to him as a wonderful counselor, he will give you the wisdom and insight that you need so that when you're in a season of desperation, and some of you are in seasons of desperation that have lasted longer than others. Some of you are in situations where it feels like, man, it just can't get any worse. And if we're being honest, the holidays, times like this, for some it's great joy, right? It's great excitement and, and fun and we're just pumped up for Christmas. But other times, it's, it's an amplifier of all the things that are going wrong. It's an amplifier of all the bad things, all the missed memories, all the hurtful comments. 
Some of you, when you hear somebody say, man, I'm so thankful for family gatherings, you think, I don't even want to be around my family because of the things they've said or the things they've done or how they've hurt me. Some of you, when you think about family gatherings, man, that's the worst thing you could think of for Christmas. So for some of you, these seasons of desperation can last seemingly forever. But what do we do with it? Do we push it down inside and bury it? Act like everything's fine? Pretend everything's good? No. We go to the wonderful counselor who is by his grace, if you know Christ as your Savior, giving you his Holy Spirit. And what's the Holy Spirit called in the Word of God? The one that comes alongside, the comforter. And so as he's counseling through the working of the Holy Spirit, through the inspired Word of God, you're finding wisdom is given to you. And now you have the ability to make a choice in how you're going to respond to that desperation. How you're going to respond to those situations. And then here's the key. And I've learned this in counseling. This is true. Any of you that have a good friend, let me ask it this way. Has anyone had a friend? And this is, don't take this person off. You're this person's friend. They may not be talking about you. But I think most of us can agree with this. Have you ever had a friend that's come to you for advice? And you've prayed over it. And you've tried to give wise counsel. And they just don't seem to want to listen to it. And they just go do their own thing. And then it ends up blowing up in their face. And they come back and they say, man, you were right. I should have listened to you. Anybody ever have a friend like that in your life? Okay, most, everyone almost is raising their hand. Okay, we've all been in situations. So how do you think God feels when we go to him in prayer and we say, God, I just don't know what to do right now. And it's a beautiful Holy Spirit is working in your life. And oh man, it's great. You're reading the word of God and you're like, oh, I see now. Now I see what I'm supposed to be doing, how I'm supposed to be praying. Now I see how I can remove that fear and replace it with faith. Now I see what God is working in this situation. But I just don't apply any of that. And then we wonder, well, God, you're not doing anything about my situation. See, so often we go to him as a wonderful counselor. He gives us his wisdom, but then we choose willfully not to apply what he's leading us to do. And then we blame God for being inadequate and insufficient to help us in a time of need when we're the ones that aren't applying what he's already telling us. And so often in the Word of God, we see story after story about individuals that knew the right thing to do, that received the grace and the mercy and the wisdom, and willfully chose to do opposite. And it leaves us in a time of desperation. So when we're there, when we're in that place, God is trying to be a wonderful counselor. We're not listening to him. It creates a season of desperation. What happens? Our view of God starts to change. You see, there are two ways, because as your view changes... Your approach to God changes. There are two ways to approach God or to view God. The first way is we assess God's goodness and power based on our present circumstances. This is, again, where I look at my immediate circumstances, and then I determine that God is only able to do whatever I see happening in my life. God's power is only to the limit that I see in my life right now. So if I'm having a good day, God is good. If I'm having a bad day, God is bad. And we begin to kind of change and assess God's goodness and power based on our present circumstances. Maybe somebody outside of you and outside of your control made a decision that is affecting you in a negative way. It's causing desperate situations in your life because somebody else's decisions. Maybe you are reaping the results of sinful decisions that you have made. And therefore now it's creating this season of desperation in your life. Regardless of how you are where you are, you are allowing those circumstances to change God or to change how you view him or how you think he views you. It doesn't really, I mean, it matters how you got where you are. 
If somebody outside of you is making decisions that's affecting you, pray for wisdom and counseling from the Holy Spirit of God, how to maybe sever those relationships or to change the circumstance. Maybe you've made decisions that now you're just reaping the consequences of what you've done. Then don't allow desperation to take over. Allow it to be an opportunity to just fall on your face before him and say, God, I'm just there with you. I know you're here with me. Would you just lead me and guide me? You see, regardless, you are where you are. And God is unchanging in his character. And he does not change based on your situation or you and I. He doesn't change based on what we're going through. So the one way we can approach God is we see God's goodness or we assess God's goodness and power based on our present circumstances. The second way that we approach God is we assume the goodness of God based on the word of God and what he's shown us in our past, regardless of our present circumstances. See, who really needs Christmas? Well, those who are desperate need Christmas. And who's the desperate ones? Those that are at a place where they're seeing God different based on their circumstances, where they're being led to change how they view God. And they're not going to God like they once did. They're not calling out to him like they once did because they think somehow he's not able because of what they're going through. So there's one way to do it. The other way is to say, you know what? This isn't a good situation. I'm not happy where I am. This is a desperate situation. But rather than allow these things to change my view of God, I'm going to cry out to him because I realize he's still who he is. Not based on my situation, but based on his word. And based on what he's done, how he's shown up in my past, how he's blessed me in my past, I want to see him as the God that he is. Not the God that we try to make him. You see, this is the lens that we view all of life through. That the Bible is true and that God is good. Now let's just stop for a moment. Because in a message like this, some of you might be tempted to do this. Some of you, your first thought when I said that, the Bible is true and God is good. The first thought you had was, praise the Lord. Man, God is so good. And you started to remember. Did you ever do this? You start to remember some of the ways that God showed up in your life? Man, aren't those cool moments? You start actually acknowledging, God, thank you for showing up here and taking care of this and doing that and leading here. But some of you had a different result when I said that. Some of you, your first thought was, I don't know if that's true. Maybe I want that to be true, but I've not seen that in my life. And really what we're saying is I'm not seeing it in my life right now. And so I'm going to stop right here and just kind of make a point of reference that if you're feeling those things, if you're feeling like, I don't really know that I believe God is good or that the Bible is true, then I would encourage you, I can't convince you of that. Only his Holy Spirit working in you can convince you of that. But it's up to you to say, I'm going to open myself up and let the Holy Spirit speak to me. And if you don't believe the Bible is true, listen, there's all kinds of arguments and defenses of the word of God and stuff, but I have found this in my own personal life. The more I've debated with people about the accuracy of the word of God, the more answers they try to come up with, and they don't accept my answers. But people that have an encounter with Jesus Christ by the working of the Holy Spirit all of a sudden their doubts and skepticism about the word of God seem to just melt away. And so maybe, just maybe, the best way to encourage somebody about the validity and the accuracy of the word of God, have conversations, have those discussions. I'm all for that. But maybe the best way, then rather than trying to debate them about this book, is to open this book, share the truth of the word of God with them, and maybe Jesus, by an encounter with the Holy Spirit, will save them redeem them. They'll put their faith in Christ. They'll be one with him. And all of a sudden, their mind will be open. Their carnal mind will be filled with the Spirit. They'll have the mind of Christ. And now they'll read the Word of God and say, wow, I can't believe I ever doubted this. 
maybe just maybe the best way to encourage someone that's desperate in a situation is not to necessarily solve all their problems, not necessarily to give them tons of advice, but to lead them to the wonderful counselor and then just be there for them, sharing the truth of the word of God with them in a loving way. I truly believe that when we put on the lens of viewing this life, that the Bible is true and God is good, it will drastically change how we see our lives, how we see God in our lives, and how we think God sees us. Can I tell you that God sees you in Christ as his son and daughter, his beloved, the Bible says, as one that he has saved and redeemed, and that one day by his grace and his sacrifice you'll stand before him and you'll be like him, the Bible says. So if you're ever wondering, man, I know I know Christ is my Savior, but I don't know how he's viewing me. Let me just encourage you. His view of you never changes because he's seeing you as he sees his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. With more grace and love than you can imagine. But let me tell you this. If you're here and you don't know Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, you've never personally received him. I'm not asking if you go to church. I'm not asking about your Bible translation. I'm not asking about how big your tithe check is. I'm not asking about if you've been baptized or if you're a member of a church. I'm saying this, if you've never personally confessed your sins, believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving him as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says, not Pastor John says, the Bible says that outside of Christ there is no hope for heaven. But there is a guarantee of a place called hell. And that's not a scare tactic. That's not a fear tactic or, or trying to trick you into it. That's Jesus saying, I love you this much that I gave my life so that receiving me by faith will pardon you from an eternity of hell and give you eternal life with me. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, and you're wondering, man, how does God even see me? Let me tell you how God sees you. God sees you as a wayward son, a wayward daughter. His heart is broken for you. People think, oh man, I don't know Christ. I'm not a Christian, so God hates me. There could be nothing farther from the truth. God does not hate you if you don't know Christ. God hates what you're allowing sin to do in your life. God hates what sin is doing to you in your life. God loves you so much that he's given you breath in your lungs another day so that you might have time to repent of that sin, call out to Christ, and be saved. That's how much God loves you. God's not, God doesn't hate you if you don't know Christ. Now let me say this. His love for you and the grace he's giving you to repent, if you die in your sin, we are not cast into a place called hell because God hates us. We are cast into a place called hell because God is holy and just. And the sin that we've committed must be paid for. And either we pay for it on our own with an eternity separated from God, or we allow his sacrificial death on the cross to be the payment for our sin. And it's your choice. So I want to be clear on this. If you're struggling with how you view God or you think of how God views you, remind yourself that he loves you more than you can imagine. And so how do you see God? Do you see him as a wonderful counselor this morning? Do you see him as the one that you could go to at any time and cry out to him and just be honest with him? Man, I wish more people were honest with God. Man, I've asked people, how you doing? Oh, great, man, great. Greet times at church, everyone's good. I've not met one unhappy person at greet time, never. Everybody's happy, everybody's good. It's amazing. It's like the greatest place on earth. You think Disneyland is good? Man, greet time at church, that's happiness. 
You can't buy that stuff. But you know what? There have been times during greet time where I've asked somebody, how you doing? And they'll say, man, I'm just not that great. I'm struggling with this, and I just, would you pray for me? And there's nothing greater than praying with someone. And don't wait till later to do it. Do it right then and there. But listen, sometimes I think we treat God like we treat other people at greet time. God is initiating through the Holy Spirit, how you doing today? How you doing today? And we're just giving, giving out these, these fluff answers. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Not allowing him to be the wonderful counselor he wants to be in our lives to give us the strength to move on. So is he a wonderful counselor to you this morning? Because I believe it changes everything when we see him as that counselor that we need when we are in a desperate situation. Secondly, this morning, we not only see him as a wonderful counselor, but we trust that he is the mighty God. We trust that he is the mighty God. I love that verse in verse 6. Wonderful counselor, the mighty God. Not a mighty God, as though there's many gods out there that are mighty. He is the one and only, the mightiest God, the only mighty God. And I want to encourage you this morning, let's worship him as that this month. Let's worship him as that kind of a God. And so go over to Luke chapter 1. I want to look at an example here because here we're going to see in the life of Mary, the, the earthly mother of Jesus, we're going to see the, the, the way in which she trusts that he is truly the mighty God. Luke chapter 1 and verse 46. If you've been in our Sunday evening services, we covered this a few weeks ago. I want to encourage you as you're turning there a little plug. Uh, on Sunday nights, we're going to be meeting, continuing through this month, talking about the gospel of Luke. Uh, we're somewhere near the end of chapter 5 right now, just kind of going verse by verse. I really would encourage you, anyone and everyone, if you're at all interested, please come on out tonight, 6 o'clock. Uh, we're actually going to meet in the room down the hallway here where we have our weekly prayer meeting and Bible study on Wednesday nights. The kids will be in here getting ready for the musical. And so uh, if you come on out tonight, just come on in, head down the hallway there. Uh, you'll see it there on the right-hand side just past the restrooms. And so it's a great study. I love this study through the book of Luke. But look at Luke chapter 1 and verse 46. And we're just going to read these verses uh, down to verse 56 together. It says this in verse 46, so read along there. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He has showed strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. He that hope in servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary abode with her about three months and returned to her own house. This is an amazing story. You see, Mary is in a very strange place as a teenage girl. Believed to be about 17 years old, Mary has just discovered the news that she is going to give birth to the Messiah. And I always have to ask this whenever we get to this passage, whenever we're talking about this, I want to ask any of the women in here today, just stop and think for a moment when you were 17 years old. If you received the news that Mary received, 
what would that have done to you? How would that have affected you? How would that have challenged you in your thinking? To try to put your, 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 your mind in what Mary was thinking and your heart and what she was feeling. And I can't imagine what she felt in those moments of realizing that she was going to give birth to the Messiah prophesied by the prophet Isaiah 800 years prior. When you read in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 there and you realize who this person is, her whole life she's been taught that one day there will come one who will be a savior to his people that will be like Joshua in the Old Testament that will lead us into the promised land. And you get the news that you are his mother on earth. It's your job to raise this child. Some of us, man, we have panic attacks to figure out what cartoons our kids should and shouldn't watch, right? Nobody's ever struggled with that, apparently. You're all like, oh, no, we got that figured out, okay? We wonder, okay, how do I even figure out how to get my kid from sitting on the bedroom floor in his underwear to getting dressed for the day in a loving and gracious, godly way without losing my mind on the child, and it just so happens, it's Jesus. I don't, I don't know if Jesus did that. Some of you are like, oh, Jesus would have never been disobedience. Could you imagine if you're Mary and you're correcting Jesus for something that you thought he did, but he's sovereign and knows all things and goes, Mom, I'm not going to tell you again. It wasn't me. It was James. <laughs> Do you doubt the child? Like when my boys go, no, no, it was Josiah, and I'm like, I don't know about this. You can't really doubt Jesus. No, it was James. Oh, he got me again. I guess it's James, okay? I'm really sorry, Jesus. Please, please forgive me, okay? Because you don't want Jesus mad at you when he gets older, right? Like some of your kids could write books and go to therapy, but Jesus, he's the son of God. Like, I mean, if you're going to make anybody mad, don't make Jesus mad. So when Jesus like, can I have extra ice cream? Sure, Jesus. All the ice cream you want, buddy. What else do you want? You want some more ice cream? I want some fudge on that, right? We're trying to make Jesus happy. But could you imagine you're the parents of Jesus? Man, what would you be feeling? What would you be thinking? I, there would be a ton, and we joke about all the other stuff, and I'm just teasing. But I would feel a lot of fear and worry, and I would be doubting not Jesus, but myself. Man, how can I do this thing that God has called me to do? So how does Mary respond? Well, it's amazing. One of the first things she does is she goes and sees her cousin Elizabeth, who is older but has been gifted with, with a, a pregnancy here. And the angel uses an example to tell Mary, if God can do this with your cousin Elizabeth, think how much greater God can work in you. And so Mary goes to Elizabeth, and there's a great passage in Scripture of verses 39 through 45. We don't have time to read it, but it's amazing to see the interaction between Elizabeth's response to Mary and how John the Baptist, who is in Elizabeth's womb, responds to just Mary coming in the room. And how the Bible says the Spirit of the Lord was with John and, and leapt in her womb. Side note here, if life doesn't begin until birth, then what in the world was happening inside Elizabeth? How could God say that John leapt with the Spirit of God already with him? And by the moving of the Spirit of God, it's amazing to see that if we just take a second look at Scripture, we'll see that life begins at conception. But here we see Mary's response to what's going on. So what does Mary do in response to this news that she's going to give birth to the Savior of the world? Well, I truly believe that Mary replaces worry with worship. She replaces worry with worship. 
She goes to Elizabeth. Elizabeth affirms all that the angel had said through a great work of the Holy Spirit. When she replaced her worry with worship, she realized the might and the power of God. So let me encourage you with this. We too, when feeling desperate, can remember the might of our Savior. And we can stop and replace worry with worship. And watch God do something that we can't even imagine. I want to give you guys real quick, and I have to say real quick, because when I say what I'm going to say, you're going to be like, we're going to be here till 1.30, but we're not. If you're visiting today, you're like, what's he talking about? Just come a few more times, and you'll figure out what we're talking about. Twelve reasons to trust in God as our mighty God. See, some of you, there was fear there when I said that twelve you're like, it's 11.42, and we're only halfway through the message? Like, what's going on here? Twelve reasons to trust in God as our mighty God, as Mary did in these verses. And so if you're taking notes, if you haven't been taking notes to this point, get out a pen and paper. Get out just something to write with. Maybe in the flyleaf of your Bible, just jot these things down. Because I love the way that Mary acknowledges these truths about her God and about our God today. Because honestly, if we don't stop and start thinking through these things, we can very easily let worry win and worship fall to the background as something we just do on Sunday morning. So what are some ways that Mary acknowledged or reasons that she found to trust in God as her mighty God? Number one, the first thing we see is that our mighty God is the Lord. Verse 46 talks about he is Lord of all. He is not just Lord of the church or Lord of you and me. He is the Lord of everything. He is overseeing all of it. The Bible is very clear that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. He is Lord. Our mighty God is Lord. Our mighty God is also Savior. Our mighty God is my Savior. Verse 47, Mary says this, And my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. The word Savior here means rescuer or hero. Now I know right now there's this channel on cable on satellite called the Hallmark Channel. And they're going to have and have had a ton of movies with these heroes in them. And I'm sure none of the ladies in here, or men, watch these things, right? You never would expose yourself to such cheesy, lame plots. Some of you are like, well, that's pretty harsh. Sandra won't let me watch a Hallmark movie when she's watching one with her, okay? It's just, she's like, can you just leave the room? Because I figure out the plot in like five seconds, and then I tell her what's going to happen, and she's like, I know what's going to happen. I don't care. I just want to watch it and be entertained. Leave the room. So I'm like, okay, fine. I'll go watch hockey or something. But all these movies, you know why these things are so popular? Because there's always this kind of a hero, right? Somebody that rides in the knight in shining armor comes in and rescues the young woman from this mean, angry CEO of this company and takes her to a small little town and they ride horses and have picnics and do all the kinds of stuff. And she's like, oh, he's so dreamy. Oh. Right? I've always told Sandra, I feel so bad for the first good-looking guy in a Hallmark movie. It's always the first good-looking guy that's never going to get the girl. It's that, like, second good-looking guy that gets the girl every time. So whenever there's a first good-looking guy, I'm like, well, he's kind of, he's out, he's done. But why do these kind of movies appeal to us? Why do, why do she, superhero movies? 
You know, like Iron Man's and Captain America's and all that. Why do they appeal to us? Because there's the ancient classic story of good guy, bad guy. And there's these group of people that need a rescuer, need a hero to come in. And let me tell you something. Jesus Christ is our hero. He is our rescuer. And he rescued us not just from the struggles of life that we go through at times to leave us empty and alone. He rescued us from the power and penalty of sin. Setting us on the way for his heaven. So he is the Lord. He is my Savior. Verse 48, Mary acknowledges that our mighty God is omniscient. He knows all things, including what I am going through. Including what I think, how I feel. It says here in verse 48, For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. What does that mean? It means he knew what she was going through. He understood because he knows all things. Can I stop for a moment? If your God knows all things and you know that God is your heavenly father and savior, it should change the way you sleep at night. Because if you're here this morning and you're struggling with worry in a desperate situation, you can't sleep, you don't know what to do, man, take peace, take hearts that your God knows what you're going through. And if he is Lord and he is your Savior and he knows all things, he has not forgotten you and he has not let you go. A great reminder of this truth is found back in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. Love this verse. It says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. And I love that verse. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. In thee. How do I have a great night's sleep? I trust in him and I find that perfect peace. Knowing that my God is Lord, he is Savior, and he knows all things. Does it mean everything's going to be rosy in the morning? Everything's going to be perfect? No. There's still going to be trials. Because as I said, he didn't rescue us from the struggles of our lives. He rescued us from the sin in our lives. So when I go through a struggle, I have him with me. And I have a peace that is beyond understanding, the Bible says. Quickly, we got to fly. Our mighty God is also, and it's kind of obvious, our mighty God is mighty. This is not the genie in a bottle type mentality that he'll do whatever I want when I want him to do it. But it means that he is a God that is limitless. There is no ceiling to his ability. He is limitless, and he can do whatever he purposes to do. Number five, also, among the 12 things that we're talking about here, our mighty God is personal. In verse 49, Mary says God has done this work to her. We can all think of times that God has shown up in our lives, as I said a little bit ago, but we can forget if we are not careful. I would encourage you, when God shows up in your life in some way, even a little thing, write it down, mark it down. Take note of what I call God sightings in your life. So we can share it with others, which is exactly what Mary is doing. Do you realize she's saying all of this to also encourage Elizabeth? We always look at this passage and we think, man, look at how Elizabeth encouraged Mary. But how about how a Mary is encouraging Elizabeth? I mean, you're Elizabeth, you're older, you're not expecting to have kids, and this news is given to you, and she's excited and she's full of joy. But I'm sure there's fear and worry there. So what does Mary do? She shares worship with Elizabeth. See, worship is something we do individually, but it's also something we do collectively, encouraging others to change how they're viewing God or how God views them. So you write down the God sightings. You take note of it. Number six, our mighty God is holy. 
verse 49. He is wholly separated unto himself. God cannot allow sin in his presence, and that is why he sent Christ to be our Savior, so that we can, by receiving him, have an eternal relationship with him. God is holy. Number seven, our mighty God is merciful. Look at verse 50 together. It says, he has showed strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their imaginations. I'm sorry, I read verse 51. Verse 50. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. I love this. How, how, how vast is God's mercy? Like, what are the measurements of God's mercy? It's, well, I love that. From the east to the west, right? As far as those two things are, there's no, there's no limit to his mercy. Because, listen, what does the Bible say? It's not just for this generation or that generation. It's what? From generation to generation. It's ongoing. It's everlasting. You see, justice is when you get what you deserve. Justice is when you get what you deserve. Mercy is when you don't get all that you deserve. And grace is when you get what you don't deserve. So God's mercy is abounding. He says it's to all those that fear him. He's giving you mercy, and that means he's allowing you to have opportunity to receive his grace. Number eight, our mighty God is powerful. Verse 51, I read it already. God can do anything he wills to do. Number nine, our mighty God is sovereign Lord. He is sovereign Lord. Mary realizes by the moving of the Spirit that no matter who is in charge politically, God is the only true eternal ruler. Look what it says there in verse 51. I know I read it already, but let's read that second part again. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. I love this because when rulers and leaders and, and all these individuals rise up against God or think that they're the authority, God reminds them through various ways that he is truly sovereign. He is the one that is over all. The Romans thought that they would rule forever. They're ruling now in this time. And they thought they would rule forever. Before them, the Greeks believed they would rule forever. The Assyrians believed that they would rule forever. Before them, the Babylonians believed the same thing. Before them, the Egyptians believed the same thing. And all the way back through history. But only our God is sovereign over all. Write it down, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 11. At the name of Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. These human leaders and powers are nothing compared to our God. You see, he is sovereign Lord. Our mighty God is amazingly gracious. Verse 52 says that he will lift up the humble or those of low degree. No matter what you're going through, humble yourselves before God's mighty hand and know that he is good. Number 11, our mighty God is generous in verse 53. I love that part of worshiping God involves acknowledging his generosity to those in need. Look at it with me, verse 53. He hath filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he hath sent empty away. I love that as Mary's worshiping God, she's not just acknowledging what God is doing for her. He's acknowledge, she's acknowledging what God is doing for those in need. Those in desperate states. Those that have empty bellies. But I have to ask the question this way. How does God, who is on his throne, how does the Lord Jesus Christ, who's on the right hand of the throne of the Father, how in the world do they, who are not physically on planet earth, how do they feed 
hungry people? How is somebody who is in need of food get fed and God get the glory and the credit for it? How does that work? He's not even here. Could it be that his church, filled with his Holy Spirit, is meant to be the ones that are the hands and feet of this God, and we go, and as we're feeding the hungry, as we're ministering to those in need, God is getting glory because it's him doing it through us? And as we worship God for being all these great things, gracious and loving and merciful and all these things, don't forget that he is a God of practicality. He is a God that wants to meet people's needs. And maybe he wants to use you to do that. So I encourage you, as you're going through your daily life, don't just think about how God is being generous to you. Think about how does God want us to be generous to each other. And number 12, our mighty God is faithful. Look at verses 54 and 55. It says, He hath helped in his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. I love that because what is Mary reminding us of? Way back Genesis chapter 12. If you've never really done a study through the book of Genesis, I promise you, when you read the book of Genesis and study it in context, it will change the way you see God and see his plan for the world. Man, everything is crazy. Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel has taken place. God disperses humanity throughout the face of the earth, gives them different languages. And then in chapter 12, he calls this one man, Abraham, and says, you're going to go to the nations and be a light. It's amazing how that works. God spreads us across the planet and then says, now I'm going to use Israel, my chosen people, to go reach those nations that I just spread. We get to the New Testament, and guess what Israel didn't do? They didn't do what they were supposed to do. So Jesus says, I'm going to pick 12 new apostles. And they're going to lay the foundation of this thing called the church. And you're going to go and reach the nations with my glory and with my grace. You see, God is faithful. He promised to Abraham this blessing of his seed will come. There a line of blessing that will be established that Jesus will come. And here, thousands of years later, Mary is realizing, God, you are faithful to your promise, faithful to your word. Whatsoever God promises, he will do. Now, that's an amazing blessing for us today, and here's why. I'm very excited and thankful for his faithfulness. You know why? Because just like he promised Abraham, Jesus would be born. He fulfilled that promise. He made a promise to us, to the person of Christ, that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. One day I will leave this world and I'm praising God that he is faithful to his word because I know with a guarantee that he has given me that I do not have to fear death or fear did he really mean he would save me? Did he really mean that? No, no, I trust in his faithfulness because if he kept his promise here, he's going to keep his promise today. And so I just want to take a moment and just say let's just praise him for being a faithful God, the God that keeps his word And I believe he will be faithful to you as well. So who needs Christmas? Who needs Christmas? I believe people who are desperate need Christmas. Because when you feel desperate and worrisome, you can trade in your worry for worship as Mary did. And acknowledge in Christ you have a mighty God who is Lord, Savior, omniscient, mighty, personal, holy, merciful, powerful, sovereign, gracious, generous, and faithful. That's the mighty God that we read about in Isaiah chapter 9. And that who is, is who was born. 
of a virgin 2,000 years ago to rescue us from the power and the penalty from sin. Let's do this this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? And we're just going to have a time of invitation. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to respond to God this morning. And we're going to open up a time here. Up front here, you can come and bow a knee and, and have a time of prayer at the front of the auditorium here at these steps, this altar, if you will. You can come and bow a knee and say, God, I just want to praise you for being my wonderful counselor in my time of desperation. God, I want to praise you for being a mighty God who is all these things and more that we talked about today. But maybe you're here and you don't know Christ and you want to know him. Then maybe right there in your seats or here at this altar, you would just cry out to him and say, God, I believe that you are Lord. And I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and I ask that you would save me from my sin. I confess my sin to you and I give my life to you. And I pray that you would keep your word. Remind me of your faithfulness. Maybe you're here and you know Christ and you're going through a time of desperation. You want to come and bow a knee and say, God, would you just work in my situation? But God, help me to see you as good and loving and kind, even if you don't do what I want you to do. And so whatever God is doing, would you just respond during this time of invitation, whether they're in your seats as we stand and sing in just a moment. Maybe you want to pray there. Maybe you want to come away from the group and just take a knee as a, as a husband and wife, as a mom and dad, as an individual. And you want to say, God, would you just show me and remind me of your might? But thank you for being the God that you are, the mighty God, the sovereign Lord who is faithful and generous and powerful and so many other things. So maybe you'd come and bow a knee and just say, God, I'm just going to worship you for who you are, not who I've made you to be, but who you are. And whatever God is doing in your life, would you just respond to him? Heavenly Father, we ask that you'd work now in this situation in this time that you would draw people that need to make decisions to make decisions that if there's somebody here that believes they're just too far gone that you would remind them of your grace and your mercy maybe there's somebody here that has hardened their heart towards you may you by the working of the Holy Spirit soften their heart open their mind to the need of the gospel Father maybe there's somebody here that is in a desperate situation I pray that you would work in their lives to show them that Maybe it's not going according to plan, but you have a purpose and you can use this for good and to your glory. Father, you be glorified now as we worship you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as, as these guys lead us in a song of invitation? Would you just respond to him this morning? Cry out to him and acknowledge him as Lord of your life this morning.